sustain that for half a second. Welcome to another edition of Rankin Review. This is your idiotic host and random Canadian Larry Parsons. And Mr. Matthew Risling is back on the program and we're going to talk about six movies on the subject of cults. I keep on wanting to say cult movies, but that seems to be a different category. Movies on the subject of cults. And uh, I think it's going to be a fun episode to fill your ears with. So enjoy that but as always go into it understanding that there's probably going to be spoilers and some coarse language in this here podcast so let's all try and be grown-ups about that if you'd like to check out the website it's at rankinreview.ca and if you have some feedback for me it's rankinreview at gmail.com that's r-a-n-k-n-r-e-v-i-e-w at gmail.com if you're looking for something else to put in your ears, I would advise you to check out the Shelf Shedding Movie Show and the Terror Table, who are friendly podcasts to me. Now, let's get busy and start talking about cults. Uh, well, I guess this has to be part of the podcast now. Yeah, we're locked in. <laughs> Oh, shit. And you don't edit these things, right? It just It's all natural, the conversation as they happen? Uh, I do. I do edit. Although I found the later into the podcast I get, the less picky I am about the edits that I make. I have Mr. Matthew Risling, of course. Like, our viewers don't recognize your voice at this point. <laughs> uh, I'm, and, I'm the guy that's in Skype. Yeah. Unfortunately, because we're actually in the same city right now, which is what's making this so frustrating, but... I, I don't want to make you sick. Nobody wants to make anybody sick, and it's just fragile times, so we're going to try this one over Skype. I've had pretty good luck. Let's knock on wood. Thank you for being here, even if I'm talking to you over a computer. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. I'm glad I could drive six hours to Saskatoon, be a kilometer away from you, and uh, do this on Skype. But it's it's like you're in the room, brother. <laughs> yeah. Hey, this is just life now. This is This is us. <laughs> So uh, you asked me to give you a couple of lists worth of things to watch, and uh, we're going to start with this cult list. Um, I guess it was thrust upon you, so did you uh, <laughs> did you find a common thread amongst this group of movies? Um, what do you feel about this group uh, and about the subject matter? Let's start there. Well, so the uh, common thread, I think, is, is pretty clear that there are cults in all of these. Uh, sometimes they're cults 
that uh, make sense because there's actual demonic powers. Sometimes there's maybe uh, like just psycho killer religious cults. Um, I, I think I can say without equivocation that pound for pound, this is the best rank and review list that I've done. Uh, there's nothing on this that I would say is a bad movie. Uh, there was the, the top and bottom were pretty easy for me to pick. Um, but honestly, uh, I don't think there was a single movie that I was tuning out of or not enjoying. Um, even ones that I thought I wouldn't enjoy. So yeah, it's good. So do you think that's the subject matter? Is that helping you into these movies or it, we just got lucky? It was a good batch. I think it was just a good batch. I mean, I, I, I do have, uh, when I was a kid, really, really young, there was a movie that made, it was like a made-for-TV movie called Ticket to Heaven or something like that about somebody that joined a cult that was based on the Moonies. Uh, be careful about cults because during that day and age, parents were scared of cults and the kids joining them. So I was kind of terrified of cults growing up. Um, but I don't think any of these really tapped into that. I think they were just kind of interesting movies for the most part. Right. Well, um, there was one that I thought upon revisiting it, is this technically a cult? But I guess we can, we can talk about that when we get to it. And I suppose some might consider me including Hereditary in here, kind of spoiling an element of that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, you re you run your spoiler warnings, and also Hereditary is from 2018, so I think it's fine. The cat's out of the bag, I think, on that movie by now. <laughs> and also, this was Hereditary was the only movie on this list that I had seen before, uh, and watching it the second time, it just kind of got richer. I mean, it's not like The Sixth Sense where you can watch it and enjoy it exactly once, yeah, uh, and then without the it's not that interesting it's it's it works fine without the twist agreed well i mean uh i made the list i built the list so obviously i <laughs> I, I find the subject interesting i've already done a podcast on cults but that one that i did with dubray was a lot more for the most part seriously minded movies uh as far as like what it would be like to really get sucked into a cult Whereas I feel like a lot of these ones are more supernatural, thriller, adventure, uh, more in the horror territory than in the psychological thriller drama territory. Um, yeah. Oh, another thing, actually, sorry to interrupt. Uh, in terms of common threads, not universally, um, there's a lot on this that are not American. So there's two Canadian movies, and I guess two co-productions, and that might have been part of it. Um, because it just they're not as formulaic as some other movies. Right. I agree. I, I find like the formulas less clear in a cult movie. Like obviously you become suspicious of people in this far flung community and on some level you know what you're looking for. Um, but I don't find it as clear a path as when I'm watching a monster movie or a thriller movie. I don't always know exactly where I am with these uh, movies. Anything else? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Anything else you want to say by way of introduction before we list off these movies and start no. talking cult? No, I, I think uh, people people have come to hear what we have to say about cult movies, so we should give the people what they want. Well, let's do it. Uh, we have Rites of Spring, 
micro-budget Canadian movie, which I had concluded on my guilty pleasures list uh, with uh, or with my buddy Scott. Well, that's one of my favorite podcasts that I've ever done. The End of the Line. Uh, the Gathering, I want to say, was an Irish co-production. Uh, Borderland is definitely set in Mexico. And then we'll talk about Hereditary at the very end there. Thank you so much for being here, kind of, sort of. I'm taking your daughter. No! It has started again. I ask you for forgiveness. I ask that you will see us through these days. And that I will be strong. I will not let you down. Once upon a time, Matthew Risling, two micro-budget movies were being made. There was a micro-budget, fairly professionally executed anyway, kidnapping thriller, and a micro-budget, fairly professionally executed cult, let's, let's sacrifice virgins to make the corn grow type of thriller. And then these two movies met. <laughs> and they became this movie called Rites of Spring. And... It's, it's funny you mentioned oh sorry uh, I was just thinking like it reminds me a little from Dust Till Dawn where we've got two movies that are banging into each other except for both of these movies are taking themselves very seriously whereas in Dust Till Dawn one of the two movies maybe wasn't uh, but it, <laughs> it seems like the main thing that these two movies have in common unfortunately is that neither really has an ending <laughs> Should we, should we jump to the very ending, <laughs> which is the thing that I got whiplash yeah. <laughs> between your final confrontation with the killer and then it just ended. I think that must have been like the most abrupt ending I've ever seen. Yeah, like it's it's a strange like math experiment of a movie, I guess. I don't know how else to put it. And um for all of its problems, I, I'm weirdly charmed by it in some ways. Like, it's got elements I like. Like I said, the, the cult sort of aspect is something that appeals to me. I like the actor A.J. Bowen. Uh, he usually plays assholes. He's sort of the, the quote-unquote, in air quotes, mastermind of the kidnapping. But uh, another real problem, I guess one could argue, is a lot of the characters make frustrating choices throughout the movie <laughs> as well. It's, it's strange in that it's a movie that's possessed of a lot of flaws and yet enough character that it sort of, I think, overcomes them to some degree anyway. It's, it's definitely got its own distinct identity. Like, it's hard to compare with anything else, which, as you know, is sort of something that I find attractive in these no-budget horror movies. So it gets as much right as it gets wrong, but I've never been able to quite reconcile of, is this just a movie for me that kind of hit me in the right feels in the right day, or does it actually make sense to anyone else? <laughs> um, so I, this is not, uh, this 
history as a cult classic. I think it's rightfully probably going to be forgotten. Um, there were some things that I really liked about it. Uh, maybe in this post-Joss Whedon era, I liked that it took itself seriously, but it wasn't like those notorious bad uh, like midnight screening movies that take themselves too seriously but suck. I mean, it was just low budget, right? The acting wasn't great, but it wasn't that bad. Um, that great, but wasn't that bad. The story wasn't... It was just... It was not bad. Um, I, it was set mainly in one location, mainly in... What, was it an abandoned school or a warehouse or something? Well, um, yeah. And, I guess we can describe the plots, <laughs> literally. True, let's do that. Um, a kidnapping is taking place, and I don't think a very smartly executed one, in that if you're kidnapping someone, they shouldn't know who you are, and if they do, you shouldn't show yourself to them. Uh, it's. It... I think the, the sense we got... Sorry, I'm going to talk over you. Because uh, this was like a red flag for me, is that the first thing that went up was a title screen card saying, wherever this was, you know, every year somebody goes missing these cases haven't been solved which for some reason that movies that start with those kind of title cards are never any good i can't figure out why people do it but i think we're meant to believe that he's done he's kidnapped enough young women and seen enough of them die that he's not particularly worried uh, that they're gonna escape and tell people right uh and again it's such a strange coincidence that he ties this kidnapping directly in the same season when these women are going missing and, and clearly being murdered and not enough is being done about it. And that's the strangeness of the movie. You'd think from a screenplay level you would try to actually, in a, in a genuine way, tie those two narratives together. One of them actually lived on the farm or one of them had a reason to bring her to this place. But it seems like the movie presents it as it's all a coincidence that this all unfolds the way it does. <laughs> Yeah, and for the, the listeners back home, so the first part is the the two women get abducted from their car, brought to this barn, and we don't know what's going on, but something not good is going to happen to them. And then meanwhile, uh, there's these, what, kidnappers, there's a, a really rich guy in town, so they kidnap his daughter, and is it his two daughters? Was one of them the babysitter? I couldn't tell what the relationship was for those two women that they took, or that woman and the girl. Yeah, but they had a personal connection, which was going to get them caught, which was one of the things I was talking about, about how like the characters are not super smart in this movie. Oh, oh, oh you mean because the kidnappers were in it, on it with his... Was that his daughter or his daughter's nanny. I really couldn't tell who she was. Well, she worked for them. I'm not exactly sure of the specific connection, but, like, that was their inside line, and that's exactly what they'd be looking for in a kidnapping case like this. Do you have any disgruntled employees? Do you have anybody who has regular access to the kid, knows their schedule? Like, it was... it was doomed <laughs> before it was doomed. <laughs> but then in, in true Fargo Cohen-esque, uh... Uh, fashion, the rich guy decided to take the justice into his own hands and uh, kill the kidnappers. He brought a gun to the drop off and it. it did not go well. 
And then meanwhile in the barn, uh, this is where the two movies are bashing together. Right? It's a little bit awkward to talk about this because the two halves seem quite unrelated. Because they are, the really. Yeah, it's just so then just like pure coincidence that this one woman escapes from the barn being chased by what is either a Jason Voorhees or a demon. Do you know which it was? I think it was supposed to be a demon, but a demon that looked like a pretty standard leg slasher. Yes, uh, that was a little yeah. bit disappointing, but I think I will attribute that to the film's budget. No, for sure, for sure. Um, and so there were good scenes. scenes that, so some of the scenes that I really liked, um, the chase through the corn, not the first movie to do that, but cornfields are scary and chases through them are just dramatic because... Yeah. Horn's really good that way. Uh, it's in these neat rows that you can run down, but you have no idea what's going on around you. Um, and the the effigy, which is kind of like a scarecrow with a what is it, a cow skull head or whatever, looked really good. Again, the scarecrows seem to be waving a sign here. I'm the guy killing all these ladies. <laughs> right? yeah. It should be another red flag if you're the, the local constable. Driving by that farm every day, the sooner or later thinks, you know what? <laughs> but again, I, these are the kind of things that the movie's hoping that you're not thinking about. Um, and again, it doesn't... It's strange, because I don't necessarily know that it completely works, but it holds your attention the whole time it's happening. And, like, you're right. The ending is kind of a, kind of a slap in the face. <laughs> yeah, so there's things that work... Uh, so there's things that I liked more than I thought I would like. So within the first, I don't know, what, ten minutes, our last girl main girl gets uh, kidnapped from her car and her and her super hot friend are being hung their hands are tied up in a barn and they're being hung um, and I have a lot of notes about oh god is this another torture porn are we just gonna leer at these women getting their clothes cut off thanks Larry uh, <laughs> those scenes were not that long that's not what the movie turned out to be and even the scenes, like the, the first sacrifice, he cut her clothes off, but the, he was always, there was always a person between the camera and her body, so the, you at least had, I mean, I'm still not crazy about those kind of scenes because they're a bit hackneyed, but it was as tastefully done as I think could be. Like, that wasn't the point of the scene. The point of the scene was maybe uh, the, just trying to get a sense that something awful is going to happen, but it wasn't a leering Right, uh, you know, it, hostile. It wasn't asking us to uh, in, engage and enjoy that exploitation angle, and they very easily could have. Uh, yeah. No, it definitely plays in that sort of tactilely gross Texas Chainsaw Massacre environment too, where the whole place seems gross, the whole environment seems gross. The idea of being naked there by itself is just kind of disgusting and horrifying. Uh, so no, I didn't find anything, uh, any anything approaching, you know, ooh, leering or eroticism to that scene. Never, never meant to be your intention. But we're saying like it's not really about exploitation, and it's not really about a kidnapping thriller, and it's not really about the demon. And I guess the question is, what is the movie actually about when it's all said and done? <laughs> This is one of those things where its weaknesses are its strengths and its strengths are its weaknesses. So, like, yeah, it wasn't exploitative, it wasn't leering, it wasn't creepy or gross, but then 
yeah, what was it about? I mean, it was, I, I don't know, like, um, I read a review for it after I had watched it, and the reviewer described the last half hour as people in a warehouse getting chased around by a homeless man, uh, and I think that kind of that kind of captures it. Like, it, it wasn't bad, it wasn't boring, but it wasn't super high stakes. It, so it just felt like it was fun to make, and I'm really proud of whoever made it on $12,000. He did a good job. Yeah. Well, and again, I, I am always going to be on the side of a micro-budget production like this. But, uh, yeah, the first time I watched it, I felt like like they just ran out of money or something. Like, they cut the movie together out of whatever footage they managed to get. <laughs> like, But upon watching it again, it felt more like a choice, but more like a choice that I didn't fully understand. <laughs> that said, I can't, I'm not so angry with the movie that I can, like, say I disliked it. I just think it's maybe a pretty precise meal. This is not going to please like everybody. People aren't going to be lining up for Rites of Spring 2, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think I would watch it again. I don't think I would recommend it to anybody, but it, it was just like an honest-to-God good effort, guys. Every, like, the acting wasn't great, but it was pretty good. The scripting wasn't great, but it wasn't you know, it was just, it was fine. It, I, it was an okay evening past watching it. High fives all around. Yeah. Good enough, Good brother? Good job, you plug. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Speaking of Canadian-made horror movies, <laughs> End of the Line. Um, this is a film directed by Maurice Devereaux, and uh, it is also clearly low-budget, but it also has huge ambition. And I think this is one of those movies where you just have to, like... I think when I was describing it to you, I, I gave you a heads-up that there's some weak act acting in the movie, and then I also said that it had other qualities in quotation you said was quote the most challenging movie of the bunch and I was very curious to watch it to see what like will I be intellectually challenged or is this your nice way of saying that this movie is terrible and sorry of put this on the list it has the most potential for someone to uh, have a bad reaction to it, I think. I could understand someone making the argument that it's terrible, but I am not going to make the argument that it's terrible. I mean, uh, I don't know that it all completely holds together, and I do think some of the performances are incredibly raggedy, but it, it also has scenes that genuinely take the air out of you. <laughs> like, 
They they went there. Like, they absolutely fucking went for it in some of these scenes. How successfully from scene to scene we can argue. And uh, it's 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 unique. Like, it's... it's <laughs> I give it a lot of points. Like, it, it stuck with me after I watched it. <laughs> like, it, it wasn't one of those things that was instantly forgettable to me. Some of the reasons I remember it are maybe not as complimentary as others, but... I think it is significant and worthy of distributing points to a movie to say it makes an impression, you know? And I think End of the Line definitely accomplishes that, if nothing else. So I, I didn't love every element of it, but I loved this movie from start to finish. Um, the, the only other movie that I had a similar reaction to in terms of understanding all of the things about it that weren't that good but not caring uh, was the first time I saw the movie Cube which has some pretty terrible acting, has a terrible score there are some things in it that are like questionable but as a whole it just there is just something special about this movie to me Um, so I I was really um Surprised because with your warning, I was pretty sure that I would hate this movie. <laughs> um, it turned out to be—it's not, definitely not the best movie on this list, but it may have been my favorite watch of these six. Uh, but that, part of that is because I had already seen <laughs> the best movie on the list. Not to tip my hand. It's genuinely surprising, and yes, Hereditary's on this list, so everybody's playing for second place, right? <laughs> but. uh not to spoil the meal for the listeners, but let's be real. Um, I don't know. You're not sure what you're seeing, what's real and what's not. And a lot of times in, in movies, that can be a problem for me. It starts with a woman having a dream slash vision of some demonic creature attacking her on a subway. And then... Which, sorry? sorry? By the way, uh, if there was one scene that I would have cut for sure, it would be that one. Right. I think it would have been just to let it unfold. Um, because then the twist at the end that they're actually demonic beings would have perhaps although I kind of suspected anyway but perhaps it would have had more impact mm-hmm. but sorry I interrupted Go no, ahead. So just to set the the scene for people because a lot of people missed this one and it's not super easy to get your hands on unfortunately it somehow slipped the net of the culture <laughs> this movie but uh, <laughs> uh yeah it starts with a creepy vision of de- some demonic fe- figure attacking this woman on a subway and she actually wakes up on the subway and it's actually these religious cult figures are showing up in weird groups all over the place they have these beepers that start going off and they start to attack people around them sorry i think you're jumping ahead so she has this vision of being attacked by demons on a subway uh but then much like um, the 2004 Dawn of the Dead, we cut to her job, which is at a hospital, and there's some weird stuff going on, including one patient who had left early, and there were some, some crayon drawings on her wall about rapture stuff going on, and then we see presumably her standing in front of the train, and then getting some vision, and freaking out and jumping in front of the train, right. and then she goes to and then, and then our main character, we see her on the subway platform. So sort of the, the real movie starts to kick in. Yeah. So we're, we're jumping characters there. I apologize. The, the key point for that I'm trying to make is that we have a group of survivors that start initially on a subway that are being chased by these crazed cultists that have these crucifix knives. <laughs> and 
they are saving everyone that they see by killing them. So anyone not in the cult is being massacred. Um, and I find that the characterizations by a lot of the cult performers are huge. Like they're, they're almost absurd in their presentation. And it's hard to like, I don't know. I don't know what somebody, you know, who's that wrapped up in a, in a cult belief system that they're enthusiastically smiling about cutting throats. Like no one really knows what that is like, but I'm not always convinced <laughs> by these uh, performances. I'm trying to be as, as, as gentle as I can. I, it's not easy doing, especially the the weirder thing that you're asked to do in a camera, like the, the harder it's going to be, you know, the bigger potential of looking ridiculous, the more self-conscious you're going to be as a performer. And these actors are asked to say and do ridiculous things. Well, and you have to think, this is a low-budget Canadian movie, so most of these people are like, what, fringe festival performers? They're like theater people, maybe the first time in front of a camera, so exactly. they're playing to the back of the room a little bit. And that is felt. Like, I just want to call it out because it would be wrong not to. Like, there's, there's definitely a, a sliding scale as far as the quality of the acting throughout the movie. But the energy of the story and the maliciousness and the sort of mean-spiritedness of the movie kind of starts to overtake some of those flaws for me. Just the fact that I genuinely know what not don't know what they're going to show me next. And see, for me, weirdly, it wasn't the maliciousness, although we can get into a couple of the places where, wow, they went there. Um, so it starts, like, our protagonist is on... She's she's had this traumatic experience where her patient died she was the one that jumped in front of the train and then she's getting harassed by this guy in a beige suit and sort of through the course of the movie uh, and like background advertisements or news I don't know how we're informed of this but it's going on in the background that there's some sort of religious leader that's speaking in the city that day and so all of the sets are sort of converged upon this so there's all these people in these beige shirts which are occultists and one of them is harassing her on the platform and so our main guy kind of steps in and pretends to know her and then they're chatting together um and then the harasser goes back to lurk in the shadows and then so then the, at some point the train stops and then weird stuff starts to happen like it loses all power they're the only two on the car so they get kind of get scared and then this el not elderly later middle-aged woman comes into the car and she's all like oh thank god there's people there i'm so scared but then she attacks them with this crucifix it's yeah. got and what i was thinking is those two people it was going to be them being chased by people with knives one of the things that i really liked about it is there were other people on the train and they started getting attacked in little groups and it was one where like the survivors came together as an interesting group of people with interesting mixes of personalities and it was it reminded me of one of my sentimental favorite movies the warriors where it's just like this oddball group of people thrown together yeah and getting chased through the subways of it must have been montreal where it was filmed right i believe so yeah um, <laughs> but then I, I do want to speak to some of the darkness of it because 
I, I bring this up all the time talking about low-budget Canadian movies. They're just a little bit harsher than they need to be. But a pregnant woman has her baby cut out of her and placed on her dead body. And a couple of 12-year-old boys try to attack the group, and one of them gets their head caved in and dies a really slow, kind of traumatizing death on camera. And, like, they're kind of impactful scenes, but they seem almost out of a different movie. You just... You're not prepared for them when they come. You're just like, holy shit. Yeah, I mean, it does... It is, a, it is one of those movies that does go there, but... Um, so I was surprised by the... <clears throat> excuse me. Um, one of the... One of the survivors, not the survivor from the train, but he was like a city worker. And then we learned through conversations that he had been seeing this woman. He was newly married to her. She was pregnant. Uh, he was really in love with her. And turns out she was in the cult. And then he did he have to kill his city worker friend? He gave them access so that they could kill his city worker friend. So he basically is responsible for that death, yes. And then he had to kill his wife, but he wouldn't do it, so she killed him. Was that how it worked? I and guess they killed her. So the whole the whole point, the reason that when they're doing this killing, is because the cult believes that this rapture is happening, and if they kill people before the demons come, then they get saved. So they 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 all say they're doing the work of God, um, and so like these two twelve year old kids ambush our group of survivors who totally don't want to bash in their heads with a crowbar but then one of them but he gets stabbed or something yeah. and kind of reflexively bashes in that kid's head um again i i i it's just it's not gratuitous it's not it's not overly graphic even the fetus that was carved out of that woman's stomach was a little on the graphic side yeah um but even then, I think it was more like the zombie baby in the uh, Dawn of the Dead. Like it wasn't, it, it didn't, it didn't feel particularly visceral. It's one of those horror movie things when you know you're just a kid and watching horror movies. You're supposed to see things that are forbidden that you're not supposed to see. That you know, and that is definitely <laughs> that. It's just I wasn't expecting it in this movie, and you just kind of get hit with it. So. Uh, yeah, and I think that I think there is a certain portion of the audience that that would definitely spoil the meal for them. Yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. I think that certain certain demographics would be very upset with that. Um, the words that I, the thing that I most disliked is in just purely watching, like purely the casting. So all of the women in it were like super unbelievably hot in a very particular way and there were a lot of sexual harassment slash rape attempt scenes um <clears throat> unlike the last movie with the hanging women handled as well as it could be right. uh, this one i do actually get the sense that the director was a sleazy piece of shit like i don't know i don't know anything about him but there it just seems like the kind of movie that a sleazy piece of shit would make and those scenes were starting to make me uncomfortable after a while but mercifully they never went too far with it no 
No. Um, yeah, one of the cultists, uh, and I, I think he's sort of like a almost problematically evil in that he doesn't seem to have any loyalties. He doesn't seem to be loyal to the cult or <laughs> to his own survival. He just does the worst thing in any given scene to uh, help keep escalating things. Um, and I get what they're going for with the smiling happy, we're here to save you with the cult members, but I do think at times it undercuts the stakes <laughs> a little bit. So I kind of agree, but I kind of disagree. Uh, so at the tour, at the very end, so all of these cultists, they start to their pages go off, and they've got to kill people. And there's a certain window of time we learn that they're going to kill people. And I think one of our characters is cornered, and they're just about to kill her, and then they all get another uh, message on their pages uh, because this movie is from 2006 or whatever, and they still had pages back then. Right. And, and then all the cultists start giving each other these poison pills and dying. And then what we learn is that they had this window. Presumably when they killed people with their crucifix knives, they actually were saving them because the demons start appearing afterwards. Uh, and in one of the very final shots, there's the demons, and they look like really ridiculous rubber-faced monsters. But I actually liked how silly the demons looked. There was something about how silly they were that made them a little bit more scary. And I would put that in the same aesthetic as the cultists smiling a little bit too much and acting a little bit too big. Because, yes, from a practical point of view, this probably does come from not having a huge costume budget and yeah. not being able to afford professional film actors. But on the other hand, it adds to a certain surreal vibe and a certain unpredictable vibe and like what is the tone of this and the fact that the tone is never quite sure so you're just never quite you never quite feel grounded right um i like them from a distance when we first saw them crawling in the ceiling or just peeking their head around a corner this seems like the closer they got to the camera the the more you know they looked like what they were like people in weird rubber suits <laughs> but uh uh, that's that's fine. I mean, again, I, I, I am always going to be cheering for a low-budget movie. I do take issue, though, that those creatures were front and center in all of the marketing for the movie. Because that is the big kind of, uh, holy shit, the end moment of the movie. And uh, it, there would be way more impact to it if, you know, you weren't waiting for it to happen. Yeah, yeah. And which is what I was saying earlier about the initial dream of the demons like cut that um, because it, it just seems like cultists killing people again there's some point where you have to ask yourself is the rapture really happening that would be a twist and then you're like yeah for sure that's what it is like it's not that hard to solve but you don't need the movie fighting itself and it also even even though I sort of suspected the twist early on it didn't ruin my enjoyment the whole the movie doesn't rely on the twist for it to be an interesting movie. It was kind of I don't know. It was a fun romp. For me. It was a group of survivors being whittled down. It like it sort of follows a slasher template in that regard. But like, who's going to get out of here? How I guess would be the typical thing that we'd be thinking about. And instead, it's like, when are they going to find out that the demons are actually here? <laughs> right. And that was an unfortunate misstep. But I'm glad you really liked it. I I understand that. There's a lot of people that would would just, you know, 
put their shields up really early in this movie and just not allow themselves to take the ride. And I do think if you allow yourself to take the ride, this is actually a pretty fun movie. <laughs> it's like, it's completely unstable and weird and raggedy, but it somehow holds itself together. Yeah, again, I'm going to have to say it's like Cube a lot in that I had a really strong positive reaction to it. I don't know if I would recommend it because if you recommend it to somebody... And then they're like, the acting's bad, that's stupid, it's cheap. Like, if somebody were to watch this with folded arms, they would hate it. Yeah. there's kind of a lot that's imperfect about it, but uh, I don't know, it spoke to me. Me too, bro. This church was built in the first century. The church was buried deliberately around the time of the Black Death. There are things we don't understand yet. The gathering. People who came to the crucifixion not to worship, but to watch. I see these horrible things. These figures appear again and again at scenes of human tragedy. I've seen these people in your town. So The Gathering was a movie that I'd like honestly never heard of. I, I was like being myself and at a place like a consignment store buying cheap horror movies and here this Christina Ricci movie is that I had never seen before. I, I have a weird thing with Christina Ricci. I think she's a good actress but I, she just she never completely clicked out of the, the gate. She's never found that movie that absolutely elevated her. And because she's been in Hollywood her whole life, and because I've known her as a kid, I have a I have sometimes a hard time dealing with her when she's pouring on the sexy, like in movies like Black Snake Moan and things like that. <laughs> I don't know. I just remember her of Wednesday Adam, and it makes me feel awful <laughs> looking at. I don't know that. <clears throat> she's a. Uh, She's sort of been trying to uh, find that project that's going to get her noticed. And uh, she does seem to like the horror genre. So I bump into her fairly often and I'm kind of cheering for her. I watched the movie. I like the movie. But I also kind of understand how it managed to completely slip by without much notice as well. It's, uh, it, it's got the feeling of something that was, I don't know, almost made for TV. Or... or uh, that is exactly uh, one of my comments is not terrible, colon, a bit of movie of the week. Yeah. Really felt like a TV movie. Featuring Christina Ricci, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, and a lot of good actors. Actually, Carrie Fox was one of these people I've, I've always liked. I'm like, why did she never uh, pop after Trainspotting? Everybody else from Trainspotting popped. Her, her sin was probably staying home. She decided not to move to Hollywood. <laughs> <clears throat> um, but the movie's competent I mean this is my sort of beginning and opening salvo here but uh, I, the acting is good the presentation is good the story is not uninteresting as it unfolds but there's nothing succinctly like memorable <laughs> about it yeah so this is uh, I've never heard of this uh, and this was the, the first one in the list when I was watching it and there were a lot of red flags. So I mentioned in in 
Rites of Spring, there was the red flag, or call it a yellow flag with the title card. No movie that starts with the title card is ever all that great. This one, the opening trailers were starting to be a bit red flaggy with movies like the number 23 that Jim Carrey won and sort of movies of that caliber uh, like just these forgettable um, and then when I saw Christina Ricci was in it that was another kind of red flag because I think I've mentioned on this podcast a few times that horror movie with stars in it doesn't really work um, because they're either the killer or you know, like, you just never have to wonder what's going to happen to Christina Ricci. She's going to survive to the end of the movie. You'll feel safe uh, until the third reel anyway. Yeah, and so I was, I was, my arms are starting to fold a little bit. By the time that the credits had run, there were a lot of things, it was just, it was feeling to me like a bit like it was going to be a DreamWorks movie or something like that. Like, not a, not a real horror, which it wasn't. It definitely wasn't a horror movie. But it was, interesting-ish. I found myself being into the plot to an extent that I didn't think I would be. Um, So, do you want to do the plot exposition? I do, uh, and while I do that, I just want to put a bug in your ear. This is the one that I was talking about. Is this a cult? Oh, yeah, uh, probably not. Um, Yeah, okay. So the story is an ancient church is discovered or a religious, uh, some sort of religious building or, or whatever, but it's depicting uh, Christ on the, on the cross, but with a focus on the gathering of people watching it more so yeah, than it, the event. It should be, should be said, um, it starts with like teenagers at a drinking party and they're walking up a hill. And they fall through. They fall through. So this is something that's been buried in the catacombs. It's the yeah. oldest church in England. You know, it's like, uh, who is it? Somebody who would have watched the crucifixion. I can't remember which saint it was supposed to have been. But yeah, like it's very ancient, this buried. So the local church wants to investigate it, but they also want to keep it quiet. So there is an academic who's looking into it. Also, to the two kids who found it ended up dying when they fell into that hole, uh, which is bad for them. But what is this place and what does it mean? And at the same time, coincidentally, uh, Christina Ricci, his wife actually literally runs into Christina Ricci with her car. And this is my big red flag of the movie. Christina Ricci has amnesia. <laughs> yeah. <that's> never <clears throat> going to be a great, never a great sign. Yeah. Anytime, like, a movie is hanging on amnesia, like, it's usually, you know, maybe if Christopher Nolan's doing it, but, like, it's usually not gonna, it's, it's not gonna hold together, right? Dead Again, which I haven't rewatched since the 90s, that was an amnesia movie that kind of worked. And let's never say never. I mean, if it's well executed, it's well executed, but generally speaking, it's a flag for me. Amnesia, she's suffering from amnesia, well, and, yeah, she starts having these strange visions, and she also incorporates herself into the family and it's taking her longer to recover and so what's the mystery of the church what's the mystery of christina ricci and what are the chances that these two things might be related okay well but also she full-on hit christina ricci with her car but christina ricci is not injured she just she's her mind is a little bit wobbly but her body is kind of fine yeah and Carrie Fox was pretty convinced she'd killed her when she hit her with the car so uh, 
Yeah, it's unusual. But uh, I think that anybody who's watched any horror movie ever is kind of going to see where the plot story is going. What I think is interesting is the concept of this gathering itself. These aren't people who actively were, like, cheering on the crucifixion. These are, like, people who were in, you know, drawn by the commotion and the noise, saw what was going on, and just bared witness. Didn't do anything to stop it, just out of grim curiosity, watched the crucifixion. I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. So, uh, yeah, so when they find the, the Christ on the cross, this stone statue of Christ, his back is to the church, which is weird, and there's, like, these spaces carved into the wall, um, and what we later learn is I do actually think that they were they were watching the crucifixion in the way that we might watch a hockey game or something like that. I think that was the point, because that was their sin. They were watching it for entertainment. Right. Um, now, what we learn about, well, I assume we're just going to go into full spoilers. Well, we already have, please. Okay. And so, um, because of the sin of watching the crucifixion for entertainment, these, were there 12 of them, 13 of them? It's unclear, but yeah. A certain amount of people, and a certain kind of small amount of people, um, they're fated to go to areas of mass horror in, in throughout time and just bear witness to it. And Christina Ricci was one of them, but she, I think she was the one that was just passing by and wanted to see what was going on. So she was the, like, this is why she gets to be kind of the good one and have her redemption. Well, but thousands of years later, she's finally grown a conscience, maybe. <laughs> yeah, but I think the point of them was that they were actually just, you know, popcorn in hand watching the fiction. Yeah. But they're not a cult in the way that we, like, they have a common goal or a deity that they worship. They're kind of trapped together, and they've traveled through the ages together. First, first just sort of continuing their, their thing, where they just watch tragedies, but eventually sort of facilitating tragedies. It also reminded me of this novella, uh, Vintage Season, which was made into a movie that's been forgotten by time called Timescape, about time travelers that travel back in time to watch tragedies take place. So they can have front row seats to, you know, a meteor landing or a, a blimp exploding or whatever. Um, I was thinking that. Uh, there's a movie with uh, Jeff, Jeff something from Dumb and Dumber. Jeff Daniels. That's Timescape. That's the same movie yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that movie, I, I, this felt to me like a kind of soft remake of that movie. But yeah. I see there's a lot of stories like this. Yeah. Uh, the the original legend of, I think, I think it's the Wandering Jew uh this guy who says something during the crucifixion and is then doomed to wander the earth until rapture for that uh, for that cat call. It's sort of like a an escalation of that idea, I guess. Um, one of my notes was that the immortals can show up to the crucifixion for entertainment and then are cursed to tour the horrors of history. I think that's a good premise. Um, I think it would be a great premise for series of Terry Pratchett novels. Right. It, it lacked the heavy pathos, but it was kind of an interesting idea. It seemed more silly than anything. Uh, but it's not to, not to say the movie was silly, because I liked it well enough. Um, I just think that premise didn't work that well in suspense, because I don't, I don't know about you, I never felt like I was in suspense. No. 
I didn't mind the reveals while it happened, but I was at no point at the edge of my seat. And that, I think, lends to the fact that the movie kind of disappears from you. It's, say what you will about end of the line. It, you, 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 it's memorable. It sticks in your head. There's something that you just can't close your hand on about the movie. That's not even bad. It's just kind of like, it, it does what it does fine. But in a way, the premise is more interesting than the movie. <laughs> I think that's exactly how I felt. Um, I, I didn't mind watching it unfold because I, I didn't, like, you know, from when we were Christina Ricci, if you, if I had to guess what it was about, I wouldn't have guessed people that were watching the crucifixion for entertainment and had to do this thing, right? I think it unfolded at an appropriate pace. Um, it was an interesting premise. Uh, there were some moments that were kind of irritating. Uh, so our main, so there's kind of three main characters, right? There's Christina Ricci. There's the guy that, the scientific guy that assesses monuments, and then his priest friend, who isn't really his friend because he debunked another monument and shroud of churn nonsense or something in the past. So yeah. they have their, their tension. But the priest is, I mean, they're both really into the truth, but one of them is religious and one of them isn't. <laughs> They're um, both really into their truth, yes. Uh, and then there's this other mysterious figure who we learn is one of the Christ tourists. So Christina Ricci is like one of those people, but she's got amnesia, so she doesn't know she's in that fold. But he's being all ominous with our scientist character. He says something about his faith, and the, the scientist guy says something like, I'm not Christian, and he says, your faith in scientific rationality and it's like oh puke <laughs> but, but the movie's not about that I mean it, it's brought up in that scene but it's not one of the bold themes that they're trying to tackle in the movie or anything like that well I, I, I think it's a sub theme but it's hard to say I, it, wasn't, it wasn't so bad yeah. and then when the priest dies uh, he, I think the priest figures out what's going on and then these spectators have to get him out of the way before the disaster happens or he'll somehow stop the disaster from happening? Yeah, and then they cause him to have... They cause his car to crash on a busy interstate, and then it flips, but then he's alive. Uh, and th this is, was a moment where I think the movie got bad, but so bad it was funny to <laughs> me, anyway. And then the cars are, like, zipping by, and, like, I kind of feel like if a car flipped on an interstate maybe other cars around it would start to stop right but our big surprise is he walks out the door and then the car that's zipping by hits him like which yeah. of course it's going to be i was making excuses for the movies at the time i thought like he's all in shock and out of whack and out of balance and he doesn't realize that he's walking into the middle of the street it actually didn't occur to me why nobody was pulling over to help <laughs> but uh, it, but it was also I thought kind of silly at the time we didn't know the full context but there were people standing at the overpass waiting to watch this happen and blah la 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 and the, you know, this whole business of Christina Ricci stopping an explosion from happening and protecting the child that she's been staying with and all that um goes a long way to quote redeem her character she doesn't want to witness this stuff if anything she wants to stop it so uh at the yeah. end of the movie sorry so just this horror that they're all there converging upon as we learned is like a terrorist bombing i guess yes 
which she successfully avoids at least the the bulk of the casualties for but the gathering's still there so um this guy who's going on a vengeful shooting spree i guess becomes the new thing that they're there to witness <laughs> yeah yeah i guess there's a thing in the background about church molestation and some victim of molestation that's going yeah around killing people and uh christina ricci you know gives her life to protect these kids but at the time she doesn't realize that she's i guess indestructible (laughs) anyway she's somehow redeemed by this and that makes the movie sort of feel like it has a beginning middle and end but it's just after after the credits rolled and i'm thinking about it i was like okay what really happened what what am i taking from this and i was a little bit stumped i mean (laughs) Also irritated when I watched it again for this, I was like, Larry, this isn't really a cult movie, is it? <laughs> you fail as a as a as a podcaster. But it feels like it might be a cult movie because it's a long time before we know that they're I don't know what they are, they're not angels, obviously. Like immortal souls that all hang out together. You could call that a cult. Yeah. A mysterious group together, they're trying to manipulate things so that bad things happen. It's just not... Honestly, I, I mean, I think when you get into, like, strong Anglican or Catholic churches, it's kind of cultish anyway. Right. It's fine. They're all cults. I don't know. Uh, this one just sort of passed through me. I mean, again, I can't get mad at it, but I absolutely can't get excited about it. Yeah, and I think if I had heard this podcast before I watched it, a lot of what I enjoyed about it I wouldn't have enjoyed because <laughs> the, the thing that was not bad about it was the reveals. to watch it unfold. Um, it, I, again, I was never... It wasn't It wasn't ever going to be a great movie, um, but it wasn't bad. It was certainly better than I expected going in. The Gathering. It doesn't suck. Yeah. Watch it, watch it while you're ironing. Watch it on a Sunday afternoon. There are worse movies to watch. If you feel like watching a horror movie that won't scare you but might hold your attention, (laughs) I I better not be the promotional guy for this particular project. There's no no way that it's a horror movie. (laughs) Yeah, false advertising. Maybe that's something we should flag for sure. Yeah. Haven't you ever wished to save someone? Beyond saving, no matter what the cost. This is uncharted territory. The body has to adjust, of course. We weren't built for this kind of thing. You'd be surprised at the things you find when you go looking. There is something calling them all here. What if those people get in here? What are we supposed to do? You saw it? What was that? Do you know where you go when you die? I do. Yay, Canada. Uh, The Void is one of these movies that's definitely wearing its H.P. Lovecraft, uh, you know, inspirations on its sleeve in a way that I can kind of respect. (laughs) What what do I even call this 
competitive for the best HP Lovecraft. We can't call it an adaptation exactly, but it's like a, a genre adaptation. It's so HP Lovecraft, it might as well be HP Lovecraft. <laughs> yeah, I would say between this and Dagon, like the two just most obvious HP Lovecraft movies. Yeah. So uh, it, this movie's hitting me in a feels for a couple of reasons here. A, the, the Lovecraft, and B, the slavish devotion to like gross, slimy, practical creature effects, which we seem to be getting less and less of in the, the world of CGI. And I know CGI can do amazing things, but there's still a lot to be said about really gross, tactile, drippy, goopy puppet monsters. I mean, choose when you're going to use what when, but I mean... Um, on a basic, you know, <laughs> simple enjoyment level, I know that this is a movie that I would have superficially forgiven all of the flaws for. If I'd seen this movie when I was like 13 or 14 years old, this might be one of the greatest things that I'd ever seen, right? It would be like up there with The Thing or Reanimator or like all of this. And it's not necessarily what The Void is, but that's what The Void wants to be. That's what The Void's trying to be. How successful it is, you and I will talk about that. But for wanting to be that, I really enjoy <laughs> The Void. Yeah, it was, it was a strong swing. Yes. So a police officer uh, has finds a severely traumatized and wounded individual on the side of the highway. and Actually, we, we need to back up. Okay. The first scene, there's a really weird abrupt opening where two guys one older guy and one younger guy are what are they taking a woman out of a house yeah and and then the older guy like older maybe 50 ish or something a well-maintained 50 um uh he tells him to do something or other and then they just both shoot no they douse this woman in gasoline they're gonna burn her alive burn her and like that's that's our first scene. Um, one of my first notes is I liked the abruptness. She doesn't scream when she's burned, and she dies almost right away. And I was like, okay, this, our good filmmaker that is just not too detail oriented, but whatever. <laughs> As the movie plays out, the two things that I didn't like too much kind of make more sense. Well, we do seem to have people that are suffering wounds that maybe they shouldn't survive a few times in this movie that does it is something that if you're paying attention to can be kind of irritating but, but she, she's can be like infested by this interdimensional thing so and they all could be and that's sort of the question of the movie right and it also in a way weird way kind of rubs over anything that might be a mistake while it's happening <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's a little convenient sure. yes <laughs> So uh, kind of get a cut yeah. Traumatized dude on the side of the highway who's witnessed all of the stuff that we just <laughs> we were talking about. He's The police officer has to take him to this uh, hospital that's mostly abandoned because of a previous uh, fire or something that had happened there. So it's got a skeleton crew and coincidentally, one of the people there... Sorry? One one. So we have our individual scenes with various people, which is... Uh, it's going to be like... Um, to some extent, like, end of the line. Yeah. Right? Where it's like an ensemble horror survival thing. Here are this group of people thrown together in this situation is thrust upon them. And they're definitely types. And obviously the, the police officer's ex-wife works there as a nurse and they're going to build their bond over the course of this adventure <laughs> and, and things like this. 
<laughs> um, but it also starts uh, emulating this John Carpenter uh, Prince of Darkness vibe because these cult uh, people show up and surround the hospital and refuse to let anyone leave. Sorry, yeah, you want to say something? That's my notes. Prince of Darkness, exclamation point. Prince of Darkness, exclamation point. It's like so tonally feels exactly like Prince of Darkness. Which is a movie I have a lot of affection for. <laughs> uh, horror that's not quite scary, but pretty close to being scary adjacent. <laughs> well, uh, it was sort of the one of those John Carpenter movies that wasn't linking as much. It had a character that had a bunch of lines, but like for the most part, it was trying to be a real serious, scary movie. And I, I like it when he kind of goes for it in that way. Um, the Void is a lot of, uh, I think, p pieces that are a little bit loose, a little bit jaggedy. But I love what the movie's trying, going for so much that I feel I'm giving it a pass on some of these things. Um, the the main, turns out to be one of the main uh, obstacles, this uh, Canadian actor whose name... Kenneth Walsh, like he, he actually passed away recently, but uh, if you watched any Canadian movie or any Canadian TV show, you've seen him before. <laughs> the older guy? He's the uh, doctor in the uh, uh, oh, hospital yeah, yeah. who ends up being involved in the things. And that sort of turn of the screenplay almost felt like this was a movie that was sort of being, they were laying the track in front of it as they went. Like, they, what would be cool in this scene? What if the doctor turns out to be the real bad guy after all, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so, like, what happens is the... Who's the first person that's killed? It's, like, one of the nurse's boyfriends. Somebody stabs him in the eye or something like that, mm -hmm. and then shit starts hitting the fan. Pretty quickly, the two people, the older guy and the younger guy from the first scene break in, and we never know exactly exactly what happened with them um except they know what's going on as we later learn the younger guy to get his tongue cut out by cults the cultists the old guy do we ever really learn his backstory or he just kind of knows and he's killing these he's somehow directly involved but uh yeah we're like everything's moving forward so quickly we don't really stay on him which I actually don't think is a weakness in fact I think it, it's a strength uh one of the things I like about this is they dole out kind of just enough information but the our main guy who is the cop his ex-wife is the doctor and then Kenneth Walsh is his ex-wife's father who is like the oldest doctor yeah uh, and we learned that at some point she had had a miscarriage and then he studied a bunch of dark Necronomicon type stuff and then fell into some sort of Cthulhu cult to bring back life or something. I, I, I don't know. You, you. It's weird because his reaction to everything seems so genuine and that I don't believe this is a character playing a part. Like, it, he seems to be thrown into the mess with everyone else. And then all of a sudden, he's just one of the bad guys. And I don't know. I didn't... The bad guy. Yeah. Exactly. And I don't know. It, it, I didn't feel that was cleanly handled. But, but, I mean, we get things like a nurse turning into a giant squid monster. Which was awesome. Which was fucking awesome. <laughs> we have very early on, our police officer hero loses his gun, and they have to go to the, the squad car in the parking lot with the two guys, the two mystery guys, 
kind of holding them hostage and him having, again, actually very much Dawn of the Dead 2004, where our heroes don't really trust each other. But they um, have no choice. Them having to go out to the parking lot to get the gun, and the car is like all the way across the parking lot, and there was all these cultists in these sort of squid game type masks. Um, and I, I felt that that was a really interesting like, yeah. And uh, I think that Daniel's the name of the police officer. He gets stabbed pretty seriously in that scene. And it was a... This is actually one of my notes, is that the stabbing scene was really impactful because the ambient music was so understated and the sound was so understated. There's something just very practical about that. Like, in, in a CGI movie, you would want to play it up, but it just kind of seemed like a knife going into a person in a very quick, understated way that felt more, felt painful. Well, and he continues to be our protagonist for the rest of the movie, despite that fairly serious wound, right? Yeah. And then do, uh, so what happens next? <laughs> um, well, uh, there's a... People are turning into that is happening. There's a pregnant lady in the hospital. There's a, a, a teacher's a, a student who's just learning to be a nurse at the hospital. She's, uh, I believe, played by the, the actress who played Knives Chow in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Yep. I, I like that actress. She's not always in great movies, but I always like seeing her. Um, and, you know, I was hoping that she wasn't going to go out too bad if she had to go. <laughs> and, uh, spoiler? Spoiler, yeah. Okay, yeah, she makes it. She does. Someone's got to make it. Um, so when we get to, there's a finally the portal that's opening up, and the big. You could say that the uh, the doctor, the ex-wife, gets abducted pretty early. Yeah. Uh, and so the, our heroes have to go rescue her from. They think she's in the morgue because right, she had to get something. She was she going had... down to get medical supplies, but she went with the evil doctor before they realized who he was. So when they yeah. split up, they isolated her with the bad guy. And then when they go into the basement, the basement starts becoming not the real hospital basement. Things get all non-Euclidean. Yeah. Like, tentacly, and then they sort of have their split up moments, and they have their hallucinations, and things start to get crazy and uh, unpredictable. And, you know, start having a hard time telling what's real and what's not. And again, in that arena, you can get away with a lot, can't you? <laughs> um, we talked about in Rites of Spring, the way the movie kind of builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and then stops. I think a case could be made that The Void does that too, but the ending of The Void didn't bother me in the same way, if that's the right word to use, bother, uh, that, that it did in Rites of Spring. What do you take on this? Basically... <laughs> we have evils being bound into one sort of eternal darkness and then our heroes into some other dimension and credits uh, I thought the ending to the void was worse than Rites of Spring okay. uh, both of them were movies where the ending stood out to me Right. Uh, Rites of Spring stood out to me because our hobo monster got stabbed in the neck and then it just like hard cut like, we are done just over um, this one because I think I, it felt so much like Prince of Darkness for so much of it 
and then with our hero jumping through this void and knocking the bad guy necromancer doctor with him that felt a lot like um prince of darkness prince of darkness handled that in a very classy way where the the woman who had made that sacrifice was maybe in the future some other dimension yeah this mysterious character who is sending messages this one like the wife had been turned into a bag of meat she had been transmogrified into a lovecraftian uh, monstrosity yeah that looked kind of like uh, Kang from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles <laughs> uh, but then our final shot is the police officer and his wife who now looks like a human holding hands and they're on another planet looking at some pyramid yeah. and I kind of get it but it just sort of felt like what was it love brought them together or something like it just didn't make any sense it was a little too tidy um, it was kind of cheesy. And that's sort of the unstableness, sort of under, almost invisible vibe of goofy ricketiness that this movie possesses that makes me, in my heart, know it's not as great as I like. <laughs> I keep going back to it because I enjoy watching it, but, like, it has problems. <laughs> but it's 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 a good meal. Like, it's a fun... Uh, if you want a Lovecraftian horror movie with the, that brings you those practical effects, and the acting is good here, that we've been complaining about some of the acting, I think for the most part the cast uh, definitely. Our, our police officer was really good. Yeah. Uh, the older guy of the two survivalists, he was really good. I yeah. Um, so there's more working for it than not, but I I was worried that like I would oversell the voice. This <laughs> is like. Okay, I see. I get that there's lots of problems with it. But you guys, the monsters in it are so awesome. And there's like these great moments that you're like, yes, thank you. <laughs> and there's enough of that that I'm like, I endorse it. But no, it's not the thing. It's not Reanimator. It's the void. There's some genuinely tense moments when they're, you know, going down the hallways and... The, the hospital's changing? <laughs> Yeah, their understanding of this place they've been to a million times has lost all meaning, and they're having a hard time reconciling it. That was pretty good. Um, it was boring in parts. I, I kind of feel like it's weird, because this was one of the movies that I liked, but there were moments where it kind of got dull, or like I, I kind of wanted to move along a little bit. Yeah, uh, Reanimator and Dagon. Say what you will about them; they have their their peaks and valleys too. But they move. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I uh, maybe honestly, like end of the line a lot. Once it starts, there's no moment where it stops. There's no moment where you're like, okay, we sort of get the idea. Um, when when our the, when the two survivalist guys are split up. Uh, there was an unfortunate moment where it was starting to remind me a little bit of Bill and Ted's bogus journey. <laughs> they split up so they don't get us so bad? Yeah, their <laughs> hallucinations. Like, uh, we've seen this before. Um, but, it was, I mean, I liked it. Yeah. Uh, well, and it's weird because part of what I like about it is the patient sort of, like, Prince of Darkness vibe. But in a way, the, the, the story is calling for a more Sam Raimi approach. But when you get to that super aggressive approach, you kind of lose the spooky vibe, which I was also getting a lot of joy out of. So there's a give and take there. I mean, uh, 
again, this is not the perfect H.P. Lovecraft movie, but it's a really good swing at it. And the fact that I, I put it in the same company as the, the thing in Reanimator, I think is a pretty strong compliment. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think this is another it's a special movie. There's, it's not a perfect movie. Uh, there's not a lot of people who I'd recommend it to, but there are some people who I'd recommend it to quite strongly. The um, Lee Beckmans maybe, of the world. Yeah, maybe if you like genre movies, or if you're a little fed up with formulaic movies, they, there's a lot here. Um, a lot of it is, for a movie with tentacle monsters, there's a lot of understated, good, visceral moments. Like, you don't have this ambient music bashing in, telling you to be scared. There's a lot of scenes without ambient music. There's, like, the stabbing scene, which is not all that graphic, but because of that, it just... It hits home a lot more. They earn their moments, and they do deliver on those good moments. It's just, um, I think, like you're saying, part of the thing about the the stop and starts of the plot is if you stop for too long and start to think about what's happening, the magic starts to to, to, to dissolve slightly. So uh, take it for what it is. Don't don't fight this movie, and you'll have lots of fun. Yeah. Where am I? The other side of the rainbow. <laughs> If Santillan took your friend, there's nothing you can do. In return for the gods' protection, he gives to them... Ah! Sacrifice! Ah! I know where his friend is. Los Espiritos. Papa's gonna use you to talk to him. What's gonna happen to me? Ah! He's alive. So what do we do? Some pretty brave friends poking their nose where they shouldn't be poking it. These guys are gonna come back and finish what they started. We are sitting ducks. I'm scared. A gentleman named Zev Berman directed this movie borderland of which we've watched the director's cut um i like to think of it as a spiritual sequel to a little movie called the goonies in which uh one of the goonies decides to go to mexico to search treasure there and grows up to become this middle-aged caretaker for a voodoo mexican cartel who likes to sacrifice people so that they can traffic drugs across the uh border they believe somehow by killing people and covering it with their blood or this curse or whatever this charm they're going to put on that they won't be able to see the illicit narcotics that they're they're sneaking over the border and uh yeah yeah maybe maybe not literally a sequel to the richard donner film but in spirit <laughs> and see I, I i saw it as a spiritual sequel to lord of the rings where <laughs> sam ganji uh... this is the story that sam wise was going to write at the end of the book yeah for a mexican satanic drug cartel but the point is, Sean Austin is in this movie. Sean Austin is in it, and it's just funny seeing him playing such an evil character. He's just, I don't know, there's something there's something strangely huggable about Sean Austin to me. I don't know. It's probably because of Samwise Gamgee, but really, it's not a big part of the movie. I think the real thing that Borderland is steeped in, well, I guess there's two things. There was a true case of uh, an American tourist who was 
ritually sacrificed like this. Like, this is something that's happened. This isn't based directly on it, but it's inspired by it. There was a satanic Mexican drug cult. Yeah. Um, but they, they're not necessarily lifting it from the headlines here. It's sort of inspired by in that way. Um, but this is also in the late aughts, 2000s, where as a response to how kind of tame and wink-wink the horrors of the 90s were, there was this crazy dark overcorrection in the, in the 2000s where everything was so brutal and so grim and so grisly. And this movie is kind of coming out at the end of that cycle of movies. And it really feels of that time and place in that it kind of makes you feel gross for watching it. It really, really makes me think that the director saw the movie Hostel and said to himself, I want to do that. In as much as the previous movie, The Void, reminded me of The Prince of Darkness, this this felt so much like a reboot of Hostel. To the, right down to the point in that we are introduced to a group of people, and one of the characters is just, they make a point of being more likable and relatable than the others, and they deliver under that character the cruelest fate that they can possibly think of. Yes. Which again, Hostel, Hostel, Hostel. Um, it feels, uh, I mean, it's, there's exploitation in the movie for sure, but it feels less consciously exploitive than Hostel, and uh, it's taking itself seriously. They're never winking at any point in this movie. Uh, this is supposed to be like a grueling experience. This isn't supposed to be a fun, sort of wacky, uh, entertaining Halloween night romp. This is like a horror movie. And... I, I can respect that for what it is. And largely, I th do think it's well executed, well acted and all things. It's just, it's not a movie that I get a whole lot of pleasure <laughs> out of. Yeah, uh, I mean, one of my uh, final comments that I made was it's not quite magical for me. Like, it's technically actually a pretty well-made movie. Um, it's pr pretty well to very well acted. Uh, stand-up performances by the guy, the actor, I don't know his name, he was in the show Narcos, he was the guy in the Cali cartel, in this he was a, a Mexican police officer whose partner had had his eyes gouged out on screen. Yeah, we open with that, he, he and his partner are doing an investigation, they get captured by the cult, one of them is killed and the other is left alive, basically told as a warning to any other cops, stay out of our business, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, his, his performance was good uh, or excellent uh, and then we've got three Americans that are, you know, it's before they start law school or join the Peace Corps or two of them are joining, going to law school one of them is going to the Peace Corps um, the asshole guy, he, he was a really good actor to me like, he was a really good unlikable actor uh, unlikable character and then when he got scared he was selling like I have just been this cocky prick and now I recognize that I'm in over my head and yeah. I can't here. The worm turns for him and a lot of time they forget that beat in those characters. Yeah. And he totally sold it for me. I think like our main guy was just like a little too handsome and a little too perfect and he felt like a a TV actor, but uh, the the other guy I think did a really good job. Um, I think that because I'm aware of like the tactics of the movie, they laid it on a little bit thick for me. Like the relationship with the stripper and her little girl, and like 
how he's gonna stay behind so he can give her this teddy bear and how he's like the sweetest person in the world it's like uh they're gonna be best friends forever i don't there's uh there's something a little heavy-handed it's like i know that they didn't literally put the Star Trek red shirt on him, but, like, it was almost comical how much they were, like, <laughs> telegraphing this, right? Yeah, and, again, this is quite a lot like Haas, though, where it's, like, it started out as kind of a boner comedy. Yeah. This is another one where I think they could have done away with the opening scene with the two cops and the one guy getting his eyes plucked out if it had just started with what we think is going to be a boner comedy and then... It you devolves know, into what it becomes, yeah. There's a minute mark. We start having the torture. might have been more effective. But yeah, I mean, at this point, the Saw movies have been out. Hostel's been out. Like, it's, it's, it's recreating beats that are there. It's interesting to me that the cultists understand that they've raised it up a notch by attacking Americans. Uh, they've been... Well, that was one of the points, right? Yeah. They'd been using local yeah, girls. point from Hostel. Yeah. <laughs> They've been using local girls, but the uh, the head dude believes that, that they need to do this to gringos so that they can, you know, make this really work effectively. And uh, they're being a little bit more careful and a little bit more aggressive about keeping people away than maybe they would have otherwise been. Yeah. I mean, a lot has been said about the cartels and the level of corruption that goes on in Mexico. So it's pretty easy to sell that they're able to get away with literal murder in the middle of nowhere in Mexico. But um, the reach of the cult becomes increasingly sinister as the movie goes on. Well, and there, there are scenes that kind of make sense. Um, you know, like the asshole character, they're getting... So their one friend disappears and they're not sure what's going on and they're also being followed around by this green car full of the cultists and our asshole character grabs a tire iron and starts smashing out the headlights and like you know big dick energy puffing out his chest uh and then the cultist pull, just pulls out a gun and shoots, shoots him, in the, him in the throat and <laughs> might kill him because the shot's off a little bit but yeah. this is where he realized shit's for real yeah. and a police officer sees this and is starts to turn down the street but kind of figures out what's going on and kind of turns his wheels and drives in the other direction yeah and there's a pretty powerful scene like yeah. getting any institutional help and for these people they understand not only that the stakes have changed but like they're fucked. Like, they're just now in the situation where they're officially over their heads. Nobody's going to help them. And spoilers, in order to really survive the situation, they're going to have to swim the, the uh, Rio Grande. <laughs> like, they are they are utterly alone. Um, I also think it's interesting. I don't know if they thought they were doing this guy a favor, but the Sean Astin character, probably because he's the only guy that speaks English, you know, is sort of babysitting them while, while they're waiting for the ritual to take place. And uh, it's this really needless and cruel relationship that he develops with this guy who he knows is going to have a terrible, terrible fate. Um, I guess he was kind of the and role of the movie. They had a semi-quasi-famous guy in the movie, but I'm not sure exactly what, what role he played in the movie as just being another obstacle, uh, a boss battle for one of our characters to have towards the end. Yeah, so his character, I think he was maybe a true believer he was like a guy that killed a bunch of women i mean we can kind of extract his backstory 
But I think he actually thought that when this American guy got killed, like this was for some sort of greater glory. Because he was kind of like the cultist in uh, Final Destination. I think he honestly believed that, right? Yeah. Well, I, honestly, I was thinking that uh, it was subterfuge. He kept on saying you're going to meet the leader soon, but I was thinking that the reveal was going to be that he was the leader, right? But that they didn't do that, which was probably a good move, because this should be a Mexican uh, cartel. Yeah, I think that would have been kind of cheap. It was weird that he was the final bad guy. So there was like three bad guys. There was the leader of the cult who died pretty quickly and ignominiously. And then there was the main enforcer, the guy that gouged out the police officer's eyes, this very, just naturally very creepy actor who I googled, and he just looks like a monster uh, in, in his day-to-day life. And I uh, think that's why the first scene's there. You're talking about the killing of the cop and the brutality of the opening. So as soon as we see those guys, we know this isn't a false scare. This isn't like a, you know, a red herring. We should fear these guys. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I get why it's there. I just think it would have been better without it. Right. But whatever. I mean, neither here nor there. But it was weird to make Sean Austin a boss fight. Like, he honestly should have been the first of the bad guys that died. Yes. Yeah. I don't know what. Like, a mediocre person. Like, like an actual serial killer. Like, one of those people that are bad, yeah. bad at life. So, murder people. Would you describe Borderland as a torture movie? Uh, one of my first notes, and this is when the two police officers, the two Mexican police officers are going into the pension and looking for clues, and, and we later see one eye up and is about to get his eyes plucked out. My notes are, I hope this doesn't become torture porn. I would say that's the most torture porn scene in the whole movie. There's a lot of tied up people, but it's... It, seem quite like the movie wasn't about slicing people like they were pig carcasses no. I, I think it's yeah um, it, it's weird because it has the feel the vibe the setup the characters and the grunge of a torture movie, but it doesn't quite get there. And I was wondering if, like, people who do like that sort of genre might therefore find the movie kind of a tease and a frustration. I kind of liked that they were trying to have their cake and eat it too, and that they showed us enough that we definitely got our R rating and believed the incredibly gr- grim stakes, but they didn't make me feel like a horrible human being for watching the story. Yeah, um, I, I would say that I, I actually kind of felt icky for some other reasons. Uh, there was a couple of things that I didn't like, um, which were, it, it wasn't gross in the way that watching a torture porn movie makes you gross. It felt really fucking racist, like low-key racist to me in a lot of ways uh, in, in an early 2000s specific way um, one is that the like the filter it was exactly like the filter in the movie Traffic when they're showing Mexico and everything's washed out in extra orange right. and it's like not like you know this is like a place that is not it's not us like this is a It's a dirty, otherworldly place. (laughs) Yeah, and then the 
the coneness of it all with the antagonist, which was making me a little bit uncomfortable. Um, like, I don't know, it reminded me of a Tom Clancy video game. It was just like, it's not quite racist, but it's not quite not racist. But I get what they're playing at from a production design standpoint, that you would probably want to express that atmosphere, that sort of uh, other, make it look different, and I guess for lack of a better word, more sinister and worse than, you know, the safe haven from which they came from. I, I, I understand that being part of the production design, but um, uh, I've seen enough horror movies in this sort of wheelhouse that... Uh, I guess I've effectively been scared off taking that off the beaten tourist adventure path, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, and it, I mean, it was it was all very clear from you know it started out with these good what are they must in California, right, at a beach party in California, yeah. going to Mexico where there are no rules, and path and have an adventure and that adventure is going to turn horrific and that was actually not bad that was one of the things that I kind of liked about it was like the broad horizons and we're going to get in over our head yeah uh, but it, it got very tropey and it like it fell into a lot of early 2000s tropes which was starting to get to me a little bit well it was just a bad trip you wanted to go someplace where there's no rules well careful what you wish for. <laughs> um, it's not my kind of horror movie, but I, I can't say that it's not an effective one. Yeah, uh, there, there were some um, some things that I really liked. Like the last final boss fight, when they get away from the cult, and then they go to a cabin, and then they get attacked by more cult people. Yeah. Uh, the cinematography of that fight was really good. Where there was the, like the cars and in the dark with the headlights behind the people light the fight, which was really neat. Like the, the use of light and use of space in the list was good. Um, and also like as a viewer, you're kind of blinded when the camera is directly on the lights and so the shadows are doing work and all of that I thought was really well directed. Yeah. Um, and it, it was, the stakes were big enough where you're like, no, the, this could really end with them all being dying, dead and rolling credits. Like you, I didn't feel like I knew exactly that this was going to cleanly end, you know? Yeah. Um, the beautiful people I thought were a little too beautiful in movie kind of ways. Uh, so that kicked me out of it a tiny bit, but whatever. Um, I did think it got a bit boring after a while. I think it was, it was pretty close to two hours. Right? 107 minutes, I think. Yeah, but uh, for this type of movie, that that is pretty long. Uh, I think probably cut out 10 minutes, and it would have it would have felt a lot just more like this happens, like just go go go, because that's the kind of movie. Like it wasn't it wasn't really building an atmosphere too much. It was more jumping from set piece to set piece for me. But it, 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 I think, delivers the good. Again, unless you're really like one of these bloodthirsty, torture porn type of people. Um, I, I did a, an episode of, maybe there have been a couple now, just called Bad Trip Movies, where people go someplace that they shouldn't go and make a bunch of terrible mistakes and pay a terrible price for it. This is in that wheelhouse, and it, it does the job. Um, I don't think this would be one that I'd be excited to revisit over and over again and again. Uh, 
it's to that specific guy or to the specific person that would find this kind of thing interesting, yes. But again, like a lot of the movies we talked about this week, I don't know how wide a net this one casts. Well, and this one's got another problem in that it's so close to being torture porn that if you're into torture porn, this just won't be enough for you. Right. And if you're not into torture porn, it's maybe too much for you. Right. Um, but I think it's I think it's a well done movie. It's not exactly to my taste, and there are some things in it that I don't love. But I I don't say it's a bad movie. Yeah. But, like, again, there's been no movie in this whole list which we just have yelled at or made fun of or wagged our finger at. Like, where's the American haunting of this list, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this isn't it, and our next movie isn't it either. No, I mean, again, not a bad list. Come on, Peter. This is soon. It's heartening to see so many strange new faces here today. I know my mom would be very touched and probably a little suspicious. My mother was a very secretive and private woman. It's grandma. You know you were her favorite, right? Even when you were a little baby, she wouldn't let me feed you because she needed to feed you. She was a very difficult woman, which maybe explains me. I recognize you from your mother. What? Sometimes I swear I can feel them in the room. Oh my god, what was that? She isn't gone. She had private rituals, private friends. Who's gonna take care of me? You don't think I'm going to take care of you? But when you die. So whenever there's an uncommon amount of noise around a horror movie, I, I tend to get a little bit suspicious. <laughs> like, uh, it, it actually almost makes the movie harder for it to kind of break through and impress me. Um, before Hereditary, I guess, there was the last one was The Witch, which everyone said was amazing. So I was like, okay, well, let's check out this amazing witch movie. And happily for me, it absolutely delivered. Hereditary delivered in a different way for me. Like, it was being favoritively repair, um, compared to, like, uh, The Exorcist and, like, the emotional intensity of the movie. Like, everyone was saying Tony Collette should win every award for this movie. And I was lucky enough to see it before a lot of the plot had been spilled or, like, understood or just somehow when a movie gets to a certain size, you just, you can't watch it really for the first time. Like, anybody who tries to watch Psycho for the first time today is screwed because everybody knows Psycho. But when I watched Hereditary, I did not know what I was getting into. And I have to say, the movie hurt me. <laughs> like... Um, it, there's, uh, it's a, a study of a, of misery, really. This family is in mourning when we meet them and in a terrible place. And over the course of two hours and 15 minutes, things get so incredibly worse that it's, it's not, it's, it, you, it's hard to articulate it, but there's a death and we'll get into specifics when we get into the review about a third of the way into the movie that I just wasn't prepared for. 
And I felt so shell-shocked by it that I feel like I needed to watch the movie a second time to, like, actually really possess the second half of the movie. Like, it, it, I was blown away by that. And going into the movie, we have a lot of things working for it already. I have been on the record that I love Tony Collette and that I love that Tony Collette loves the horror genre and will do horror movies. And holy shit, is she ever fucking amazing in this movie? But I, I, I recognized right away that Hereditary is... That, sorry? In just in, I was watching those special features on the disc, uh, and she was saying, uh, at this point in her career, she only wanted to do like comedy movies. She's had enough like intense movies that she just she just didn't need the like where she where she was at the specific time she didn't need the emotional drain of it and then her manager handed her this script and she was like fuck you i'm gonna like this is like the most perfect scripts i'm i guess i'm not gonna do my version of mama mia or whatever well how do you not do that script and if you don't get tony collette who the fuck do you get to do that script? <laughs> like, but um, it's a terrifying and really upsetting movie. And like, I have actually cautioned people about it. <laughs> like, if it hits you wrong, it'll hit you wrong. Um, Tony Collette's mother has died, and we get the feeling because we just we're asked to piece this together ourselves. The movie really respects its audience intelligence to try and stay with the vision of the movie. We get that her relationship with her mom was deeply problematic, but she can't help but be in mourning. It's her mother who died, and uh, she's got a strained relationship with her kids and a history of mental illness. And she spends her days making these perfect little miniature replicas of her life, like uh, compartmentalized versions of her own world. Also, one of the most perfect opening shots, I mean, the cinematography in this movie is just wonderful, but she makes these super detailed dioramas of her personal life. Um, but the opening shot starts with a diorama and then... I don't know how that camera does this because it didn't seem to be a cut, but then it moved up into what seemed to be part of the diorama in her house, but it was her and Gabriel Byrne talking about having to go to this funeral. Yeah. Uh, and like, the color scheme in the movie was amazing because it didn't seem to have an obnoxious filter like I thought Borderlands had, but all of the colors were just like a little bit more than themselves they're just like everything is just a little bit hyper real the oranges well oranges is especially important color in this because when you see orange as you later learn it's associated with horrible cult things yeah but like, colors are just a little bit more colorful but without being invasive about it also this is his first film let's be clear this is Ari Aster's first feature film okay He's done some shorts, but like, wow. <laughs> um, we start in that place of tragedy and in sort of being in the after, uh, dealing with that grief. And the movie has this weight to it. Even if we don't understand who these characters are right away and we're just getting to know them, we feel the weight of the situation. And, and then... After, sorry? Just along those lines, 
things about hereditary. One of the reasons why it stands, it looms so large, um, and I think it's it's totally fair to compare it to The Exorcist um, or The Shining or like sort of that caliber is because it's technically a horror movie, but really it's it's not good for a horror movie. It's a great movie that is also a horror movie. Right. And it's mostly not a horror movie. It's like, <laughs> excuse me, uh, it's a movie about family trauma that is horrific and has like supernatural things. But like the human element is so central to it that even even if we were to learn that there wasn't a real cult or weren't awful monster things going on, it would still kind of hold together. Yeah. Well... And after opening on the, this death of the family that someone we don't know, and then a third of the way into the movie, we have a death of a character that we do know. And let's just get into it. It's the youngest daughter of the family. And in the marketing of the film, I think that they deliberately kind of implied that she was important to the narrative. Um, I didn't know if it was going to be about possession necessarily, but I thought maybe the focus of the evil might be this strange little girl. We do see her cutting the heads off of dead birds and uh, a pair of scissors. Which yeah, is like really grim. Yeah, and and a scene with no ambient music. It's just all you hear are the scissors. <laughs> but uh, so we're starting to invest, or at least I was. Like, I wasn't prepared for what's going to happen. Like, okay, what's happening with this little girl? How is she going to be evil? What's the what's the the shoe that's going to drop? And she's. Her brother is forced to take her to this party. He doesn't want to take her to. She eats this stuff that has peanuts in it, gives her an allergic reaction, and he's trying to drive her to the hospital. And this terrifying, awful, totally plausible, but absolutely deliberately caused accident happens. (laughs) She sticks her head out the window to get fresh air. and And he weaves to miss a carcass on the road, and she connects with a phone pole and is decapitated. We don't see it. Well, we see it, but we don't see it as like a horror movie moment. The horror isn't even in a weird way that. It's how the movie, like it's handled, how they hold on it, how they focus on the trauma of the older brother. And then they... Because the is just the older brother's face as he breaks hard. And then we see him going home and like going into bed. Yeah. And then Tony uh, Collette wailing when she finds the body. And the movie was already super dark. Afterwards, like the emotional impact is because this is something the movie does really well. Is a lot of the big moments are off screen. Yeah. Like kind of only one big on screen moment. Um, but like by the time we see the decapitated head on the side of the road covered in ants that's almost a relief for right. like we've been kind of vicariously holding the brother's guilt and then when we get Tony Collette's wailing we get that and then when it's just like a head on the side of the road like, oh, we can finally relax like trying to wrap your head around what happens hard enough as an outsider audience member let alone this family and we've already been living with gre- in grief with these people, but now it's up to a whole other level. And whether or not it's fair to blame himself, obviously the older brother blames himself. And obviously Tony Collette is conflicted on how she's going to react. And 
Gabriel Byrne, who I believe is like a therapist himself, is way over his head on being able to deal with this and his own personal grief. And, like, the movie is so powerfully emotional. Like, I think that the comparisons to, like, The the Shining and The Exorcist is just the psychologically poisonous atmosphere of it. It doesn't have to be scary because it makes you feel just awful by association to the terrible things you witness. Yeah, uh, I, I, so the, I think this is going to be a purely gushing review. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't really know what to say about this movie besides like just itemizing all of the small, meticulous ways that it gets more and more perfect. Um, I don't know. Like, so do we want to go into the plot after uh, the little girl whose name is Charlie is killed? Yes. Yeah. Well, this is where the cult stuff really starts to kick in, so we probably should. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so it's also unclear whether it's Tony Collette's story or her son's story at this point, which is up to this point, it's kind of is it Tony Collette's story or the little girl Charlie's story? Right. And then she is just gone. Did just one second. Um, and the focus shift. So we get the son that's dealing with a lot of guilt. The mom that is shattered with a lot of fear and a lot of guilt, and then she meets this woman named uh, Joan, who was well, she's going to the, this grief support group, uh, and this woman named Joan. And do you know who the actor is? Because I don't. I've seen her in a lot of things, though. She is familiar yeah. to me. Um, she's just got charisma to spare like she's just this kind of person that she seems loving and caring and impossible to say no to (laughs) Tony Collette is very suspicious of her but it's like this person that honestly wants her to talk out her grief Uh, and so she is this supportive character and then later she tells she has this moment where she's like almost hysterical in joy that she's had this seance experience where she's talked to her uh, you know because she's in a grief support group she'd lost her grandson and she had talked to her grandson in this ritual and Tony Collette doesn't want to do it but then they have this ritual and then it's like a little too real and Tony Collette is like roped into this but she is so psychologically fragile and this woman knows it it's such a calculated evil right well, and this, these are like those those moments in it. So the first time that I saw it was in the theater. I had no idea what was going on. It should have been a perfect experience, but there were like lots of talky people and mm. screaming people, but like not screaming in the right spots, like just ruining the whole experience. So watching it the second time, I got to notice these details. And like one of them, when Tony Collette is in her car and, and Joan walks up to her and she's like got the most empathetic caring face but if you focus on her hands her hands are like clutching the inside of Annie's Tony Collette's car and like just like the contrast in her body language it's like she's like this witch but her is so um you know what like so compassionate that you don't notice this her body language in that scene is super aggressive like 
take a put in any other face in that and this is somebody that is assaulting you in the car but because of uh the context yeah uh, and, and and the actor the performance like just the misdirection is amazing yeah and uh that's something that i really appreciated going back to the movie because honestly i was so like i said uh, emotionally drained by the movie the first time i was like i don't know this might be one of these one-timer <laughs> movies for me but the more you look at it the more the cult stuff does step to the out of the shadows and into the into the foreground because uh it it slowly as they're getting closer to this ritual and the summoning of payment there's more and more of the cult members around and the movie is very careful about every frame of it, like every the way everything is shot. And some of it I've noticed, but I actually watched a video about it that tells you where to look. There are cult members standing in the shadows and in weird places all over this movie. <laughs> there is like a deliberate unease, but not an obvious one. It's again, just adds to this persistent feel of unease. It's almost like, a, I think it was a, in the, documentary about the making of the exorcist they they talked about putting these weird sub audible layers to the soundtrack that people will affect them without actually knowing what's affecting them it like doesn't register on a on a level that you actually interpret as sound but it makes you on edge and i had that feeling almost instantly with hereditary and not only did it never really go away it just seems to slowly grow and boil over the course of the movie yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of that really subtle stuff. Like when after Peter is was driving the car, and he, you know, he kind of got high when he shouldn't have, and wasn't the best older brother, and he kind of is in some ways responsible for Charlie's death, although less than he thinks. Like there's this shot where he's walking down the hallway, and it's all done in camera. Nothing is really going on, but the framing of the shot, the further he goes down, and the perspective of the hallway, it looks like things are closing in on him. There's a lot. Uh, there's a lot of mirrors and stuff going on with mirrors. Actually, in one of the scenes where uh, Annie meets Joan in the parking lot, um, and and she's about to tell her about the seance. She's putting a stack of mirrors into the back of her car. Uh, and then there's that family dinner scene that is at first excruciatingly awkward, but then when Annie starts freaking out at Peter about, like, you killed your sister, this was your fault, the scene commits that, like, the directorial 101 uh, sin of crossing the axis so all of a sudden the characters are like flipped but everything is mirrory so like the I mean this is a mirror like there's a mirror image of the first establishing shot we had uh, and we start to see I don't know what like this Alice in Wonderland version of Tony Collette's character Annie like, like all of this stuff is just so deliberate and it's like you were saying about the sub level of sounds like it's sort of easy to miss stuff but yeah. it's, everything is just a little bit dissonant uh, and it's all so super on purpose and like just how crushingly ugly again the ugly psychology of that Tony Collette is being made to unwittingly participate in the destruction of her own family 
Like, that's yeah. brutal. That is brutal. And there's never this moment where the movie turns around, where they realize what's happening, and they start to put the pieces together, and they fight back against the cult. Things pretty much go about as perfectly as they could, as far as this uh, group. Um, I think that the real hang-up was that uh, they thought that Payman was supposed to go into Charlie, but she or was it was her name Charlie? Charlie. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they thought it was supposed to go into her, but it had to be a boy. So uh, I the Payman was like in her somehow, but they had to move her from Charlie to the to the older brother. Yeah, so, the, so the thing was this this devil demon Payman could would go into a human host, could go into a female host, but preferred a male host. Right. But just in this level of detail that I thought was wonderful, uh, not only is Charlie got a boy's name, yeah. uh, and it's like, it's good enough, you get a girl host, but it's got a boy's name. The grandmother's name was Lee, it's the same thing, the women have right. ambiguous names. But yeah, when Charlie is dead, the demon kind of wants Charlie to be dead, because they really want to go to Peter. Yeah. Um, and I think the backstory, when so Tony Collette's mother was like this satanic cult woman and when Tony Collette got pregnant with Peter she had distanced herself from her mother uh, in such a way as her mother never got her claws in Peter and then she kind of reconciled with her mother when Charlie was born because there was stuff about her mother actually breastfed Charlie she said Charlie wouldn't let her feed her so we see in the diorama right. uh, the grandma breastfeeding the child uh, where the mother is in bed kind of being not super comfortable but it seemed like you know the grandmother was putting this into place where um, it should have been Peter but just because of Tony Collette's breaking from her grand or breaking from her mother it didn't work which was always not Eamon's favorite so the cult people were kind of getting Charlie out of the way so they could get Peter because this devil would just sort of slightly prefer to his body and the movie never tells you this but you kind of you you figure it out well as things play out which is again kind of nice the way you're respected they never feel the need to have someone lay out the plot in dialogue for us yeah, it's all it's things that you kind of put together in little context clues. On a personal note, again, uh, as a fan of Tony Collette and a fan of the genre of horror, why didn't this movie get nominated for all sorts of Oscars and at the very least, Tony Collette? Like, who gave a bolder performance that year than Tony Collette in Hereditary? I would love to know who that was. I would. Yeah, what won that year? Was that the year that Green Book won? I can't remember. I did try not to pay attention to the Oscars, which is why I really shouldn't care. But it, this is just an example of how genre is not taken seriously. Like, this is an amazingly well-made movie. It's an amazingly acted movie. It's meticulously crafted down to, like, the smallest pool of light. And uh, it's a horror movie. So ugh, we'll, just, we'll just look the other way. Well, it kind of reminded me of... Um... I think the maybe the only horror movie that's won Best Picture, Silence of the Lambs. Right. It seemed like that to me, like one of those movies where it's 
it's not even a genre movie. Like, it happens to be a horror movie, but it's just, like, a well-made movie. But I think it's... I, I didn't actually particularly like Sirens of the Lambs. I thought it was way better. Right. Uh, and it should have been one of those crossovers to just, like... And, but I think it will. I think history will remember Hereditary and Midsummer, which are both Ari Aster movies, yeah. and movies that transcended genre, which is not to say anything bad about genre, because I like horror movies, but it was just like, it, it's, it would be weird to me to describe Hereditary as a great horror movie, because this is a great movie. Yeah. And obviously, Midsummer could be on this list as well. But uh, I don't know. This hereditary was less obvious, I guess. Um, again, I, was, the... I, I do have one kind of small complaint. Okay. I, I mean, there, there's a couple of nitpicky things, but the only thing that I would kind of complain about is towards the beginning when they were in English class and talking about the tragedy of Hercules. And is it more or less tragic that he never had any choice in the matter? Um, there was never anything that the hero could do to make it not end up badly for him. Kind of felt like the movie had a thesis statement early on. It didn't feel like that while it was happening to me, but maybe when watching it again, I'm kind of like, well... <laughs> That's the thing. The first time, you could easily miss it. The second time, you're like... All right, there is so much brilliance in this. It feels slightly wanky, and if I have to pick something not to think is perfect, that's not perfect. But well, one thing I can say, and it's not really negative about the film, but I think that that this and coincidentally, The Witch, another A twenty four movie, has produced this whole idea of the quote elevated horror, right? Uh, I don't particularly like that term for horror. It basically implies that. All the rest of the horror before The Witch and, and Hereditary had nothing else on its mind. So let's throw Rosemary's Baby under the bus and let's like, uh, you know, uh, or, or that somehow uh, Freddy Krueger or, or Halloween or, you know, those are lesser movies, you know. I don't like the snobbiness of it, but at the same time, The Witch and The Hereditary are good on such a different level that they do deserve some sort of special recognition, I think. Like, these are impressive movies. Like, well done. So The Witch, or sorry, The Witch, Hereditary came out in 2018, yeah. which was the same year that my other, maybe current favorite, I don't know, uh, it's the same year that the movie The Favorite came out. And both of them, I think, they fit a, a similar, um, they hit, tick similar boxes like highly rewatchable both kind of genre but they're great movies even without the genre like even if you don't like horror you could like hereditary even if you don't like costume movies you could like the favorite um i don't know i think i just think it's it's a special movie it's like just a rare movie um and it is a really good horror uh, it has good jump scares, and then when you see it again, uh, the jump scares don't work, but the rest of it still holds up. Uh, one of my favorite scenes, which I actually forgotten about, um, was Peter in bed. There's a bunch of stuff with nightmares, and in the corner of his room, Charlie walks out and puts down her head. Yeah. And then, I don't know how they got this shot, but 
she lowers her head and then her head just falls off and becomes a bouncing ball. It's like, oh, such a good shot. <laughs> so chilly. I mean, uh, obviously, we're, we, we don't really feel the need that we need to convince the world about hereditary. I think the secret's out. But um, wow. Wow. And again, Midsummer, I, I I also would qualify with a wow. <laughs> so yeah. Ari Aster is like definitely yeah. one to watch. Which of the two is better? I see a strong case on either side. Yeah. Mr. Matthew Risling, thank you so much for, uh, you know, let it, if it has to be Skype, it has to be Skype. It's always great to have Mr. Matthew Risling on the podcast. Uh, what was your least favorite of these six on the subject of cult movies and why? <laughs> All right. Well, I got to say, again, this is uh, a very unique list for me. Uh, last Place usually announces itself. I, I don't think First Place is going to be too controversial. Um, there were a couple of the, my last two either one of them could have gone to last place I'm going to put Rites of Spring in last place um, it was it had its boring moments it was it had its moments that didn't hang together there's just like it was scrappy and plucky um, not super professional I don't know good on you guys uh, swing and a miss, but uh, it's like eighty it, minutes long too. It doesn't overstay its welcome, which could have yeah. really sunk it too. And it could, it's like stuff that could go on a director's reel or an actor's reel. It's not quite a real movie, but you know, good job. <laughs> uh, the Gathering. It was surprisingly more interesting to watch than I thought it would be. Uh, not super good. Not super original. Um, but yeah, it had me. I, I didn't dislike it. Third place, Borderlands. Uh, maybe in terms of quality of filmmaking and acting, like the acting, I actually think was as good as anything in this up to Hereditary. Um, the filmmaking, I think, did exactly what it wanted to do. Maybe it wasn't exactly to my taste, and there were some some things that I didn't love about it, but I think some people would be more into. 
Um, getting into the top three, the ones that I that really spoke to me. Um, next, I would put The Void, uh, which there was a lot to it that I liked. A lot of creativity, uh, originality. It had its boring moments and it had its overwrought moments, but I think it's the kind of movie... Uh, you just don't see a lot of movies like The Void. It's not formulaic. It's interesting. Uh, End of the Line, I think, is the kind of movie that most people would hate and maybe <laughs> rightfully so. Uh, but I really enjoyed watching it. Uh, it surprised me and had me on board. Um, and, you know, I was watching with a warning. And yeah. <laughs> I would hate it, uh, but it turned out to be very special. I, I didn't mean to, to sell it to you as that you would hate it. I just wanted you to be prepared for something a little, a little out there. <laughs> well, and I don't know. It just spoke to me in the right way. And then there's, I just think, no doubt that Hereditary is number one on this list. Well, yes. Look, this was the list with Hereditary and five other titles on it. Like, And honestly, like in any given bunch of horror movies, if Hereditary was in the mix, I think that the, that the game would be fixed to a limited degree. I mean, it's hard to think of six movies where Hereditary isn't a strong place. Right. So I don't think that's a surprise. Although I thought maybe we were going to line up this one, and it turns out that we didn't. But again, I don't think that we're going <laughs> we're gonna to have any fights over this. I actually put The Gathering in last place just because for me it was the least memorable, the one that stayed in my mind. Like, the, <laughs> just, it sort of faded like mist to me. Like, uh, I, I'm sure uh, if someone was to quiz me about the finer points of this movie a few weeks from now, <laughs> I would fail, right? Well, I mean, I had to, when, in behind the scenes, when I was asking you about my notes, I'm like, what did I mean by this? Because I don't remember this scene exactly. I guess to my credit, I did remember what you were talking about, though, in that case. It, it's still pretty fresh. So yeah, The Gathering in last place, but I don't have a lot of ire for it. I mean, something had to be in last place. This wasn't a, this is not me wagging my finger necessarily. Could it have been better? Yes. Rites of Spring is cheap and on some level sloppy, but I love the sort of scrappy, we're going for it sort of feel of the movie. Like, I'm just cheering for it. And when it's working, I'm in it a lot more than I was in in, in The Gathering. But you're right, there are times where it's not really working. Or where these two movies don't necessarily seem particularly well related to each other. And that non-ending. So yes, there are problems. And between the bottom two, they, they could be pretty interchangeable. But I just went a different way than you did, and I'm terribly sorry. No, I mean, it's like it goes so often. It's like three and four, four and five. Yeah. Like two that are about as good as each other, but like... You gotta put something in the. I, mean, I could have easily gone to gathering last place. Yeah. Uh, but we'll go back to agreeing with each other. I put Borderland in fourth place. Grading on the scale of what is your goal and how close do you come to accomplishing it, I actually do think that the movie is largely successful. This is not my type of horror movie, so on a personal level, this wouldn't be the one that I would be the most amped to seek out and like. It's, it's not for me in that way. But I can't deny that it's fairly well executed in that sort of uh, slightly less brutal, but in the neighborhood of hostile kind of subgenre of, of horror movies. It does the job. 
I went ahead and put end of the line in third place. Yeah, I could see I could see Void and End of the Line going back and forth. There was that I did debate it. I did do some serious thought about it because whereas I was kind of expecting to like the Void from what I'd heard about it, the End of the Line is just this weird sort of blind buy type of thing, and a lot of people haven't heard of it. And if I help someone to discover End of the Line and they like the movie, that would please me. That would please me. But I do think it's also very possible that someone would seek out End of the Line and be like, you guys are out of your mind. <laughs> like, that is a very real possibility. The movie is a little bit off its rocker. And that quality, I kind of enjoy. But some people might not. <laughs> so, there it is. Yeah, so th this list, sometimes it's my list, uh, it, it's like, what would you recommend? Right. Uh, I wouldn't recommend End of the Line, but I can hardly think of anybody beyond you that I would recommend End of the Line to. But like, just personally, it was fun to watch. I just never stopped being interested in what was going on on the screen. And I will uh, absolutely agree with that. I mean, yeah. Um, the Void is, I think, pretty easy to recommend. I might like drop a caveat. like It's not amazing, but it's so good that you should definitely check it out. Like a... You know, if you're hungry for that uh, good dose of Lovecraftian ick, this definitely delivers that. Um, and um, I just, I like the vibe of it. I like that one of the directors went on to do this movie, Psycho Goreman, which I found highly amusing. Oh, I know. Uh, so, yes, Psycho Goreman is a great movie. <laughs> yes. It kind of makes sense <laughs> in context. The unstable nature, because both of those movies are clearly off their rocker, right? They're just, they're mad, but in a way that's kind of pleasing, but to a specific audience. So there are movies that are like, I don't want to please the audience, I want to be what I am. Yeah. You know, hopefully the audience likes me, but like, if, like, there are movies where that seem arrogant that have that idea this doesn't seem arrogant it just seems like this is my vision like, yep enjoy it or don't <laughs> I, I don't it reminds me of the band Ween which is one of my favorite bands right like, they have said like we would love to write a number one top one hit we don't know how to do it we right. just try to be Ween and it, yeah Psycho Gorman and End of the Line this is a very specific sort of corner they made. I saw a documentary on They Might Be Giants, where one of the They Might Be Giants super fans said, "It's really too bad that They Might Be Giants can't listen to They Might Be Giants because they'd really like." Them. <laughs> um, obviously, Hereditary was number one. There is a almost Cohen-esque level of detail to every shot. I mean, I used to always wonder what it would be like if the Coens made a horror movie and then they made No Country for Old Men, which, I mean, a case could be made. Um, I also just think that there's nothing weak anywhere in the movie. I meant to mention it in the review. I'm just going to bring it up really quickly now. Gabriel Byrne has kind of a thankless part in this movie in that he is asked to helplessly witness the destruction of his family. There's a scene in this movie where he is in his car and he stops at an intersection and he just has this well-deserved breakdown. And uh, I don't know, it's a, it's a, it's an 
it felt like it could have been a deleted scene. Like we hadn't focused on that character, but he had earned that moment and uh, he was all by himself. And I don't know, it was just one of many, many, many incredibly powerful little moments inside Hereditary. And uh, no one really mentions Gabriel Byrne when they talk about this movie, but he is, as everyone else, absolutely on point. Again, I think it's because this movie is not about cults and devils, which in the reality of this movie, there very much are. It's a movie of cults and devils and then wrecking this family. But it's just also about a family generational trauma. Uh, And it's, it's like this is us if there were also cults and devils yeah and really the movie would still be powerful and like emotionally traumatic even without the cult like <laughs> element in some ways it remind it doesn't remind me of because it's not exactly similar to uh, but something like Guillermo del Toro's The Orphanage where right. it, it would the movie would be just as good if there weren't actually ghosts and the, or like Pan's Labyrinth where it's just a metaphor but I actually prefer it that it's not ambiguous there are devils and devil worshippers uh, and yeah it's a great movie we agreed on what was important then <laughs> and also like I could have I could have flipped Rites of Spring and the Gathering I could have flipped Void at the end of the line yeah um <laughs> this was this was a movie where we were ranking and reviewing five movies, and there was just one. Yeah, I can. Can you imagine how mad you would have been if I if I put like <laughs> end of the line at number one? <laughs> I like I like slightly more. <laughs> no, that didn't happen. <laughs> Thank you so much for being there, and uh, I have this weird feeling like we're going to be back again soonish. Hey, yeah. So let's do that. Probably overscanned again. Probably. But it's always great to have you, brother. Yeah, great to be had. Boom. And so endeth the lesson on cults. How did we do? How would you rank? Did you know of these movies? Are they interesting to you? Send your feedback to review at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Check out the website at rankingreview.ca. And I'll just throw out another big thank you to Matthew Risling. It's always great to have him on the podcast. It's the goods to see you, even though it was over the computer. So be it. Rank and Review drops every other Wednesday, and I appreciate all of your ears. Big love to you and yours from host and runner Canadian Larry Parsons. And I'll hear you, or you'll hear me, every other Wednesday.